All right, please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading is from Habakkuk. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? And why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hymn and the righteous so that the justice is perverted. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. For the director of music on my string instruments. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And the New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 17. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? One of the worst things that can happen is for there to be a drought of your words. Nothing to nourish us. Us getting withered and falling apart. We come here today to learn again, to see again, to believe again in the God of hope You might fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you. Will you surprise us? Where we've stopped expecting very much, where we've come to imagine erroneous things about you or others, will you surprise us? You know that the waiting is hard and it is long. And we need you to visit. So come, Holy Spirit. We invite you now. Amen. I was given a book recently called Almost Everything, Notes on Hope by Anne Lamott. And its first line goes like this. I'll tell you about the rest of the book, but I just read the first line. Just kidding. I am stockpiling antibiotics for the apocalypse. Even as I await the blossoming of paper whites on the windowsill 
in the kitchen. I'm stockpiling antibiotics for the apocalypse even as I await the blossoming of paper whites on the windowsill in the kitchen. That is Advent. The conflicted, confusing, hopeful, exuberant, crushing, elated time where you're on the one hand, if all the TV shows are right, waiting for some particularly virulent strain of bacteria to wipe out huge shards of the population. So you're making sure you've got a whole bunker full of amoxicillin and AK-47s to shoot those who would take them. And all alongside that preparation for disaster is this expectation that these lovely flowers on the windowsill are going to burst with fragrance and bloom with visual delight. Bonhoeffer has said that Advent, this long wait, we're calling it, the celebration of Advent is possible only to the troubled of soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. It's a time of, says Karl Barth, conflict and contradiction, made worse by the fact that there are enormous universe-altering facts at the center of it. We are calling this Advent series that we're doing Hopes and Fears Robbed from the song that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This idea that as we troubled in soul, though we may be waiting and walking through a long wait with disaster abounding, we heard last week, There's an epidemic of kids breaking their arms, for instance. And at the same time, a promise of a God of hope who makes all peace and joy abound in us. And the conflict of reckoning with what we see in front of us and what we are looking forward to around us can tear us apart. But we're looking for where our hopes and where our fears may be visited, quelled, and helped. So it seems fitting, as I realized as I was looking through Christmas cards and seeing how in all the Christmas cards Habakkuk is used. There are all these famous passages from Habakkuk in Christmas cards. Uh, Yeah, thanks, six people got that joke. But it seems like in this idea of the long wait that we're in, that Advent itself is this this living in between times of the first coming, the central fact of Christian, of the world really, that God himself has stepped into the world and hallowed all its ground, has made everything that happens here now important because God himself has touched it and he has made your lives and all the lives of those who bear the image, which is all the people who have breath. Those lives mean something 
of unutterable value. And we live in between this time of his first coming and this time of his second coming, where even now we're told that he reigns as king, and even now we sense in our bones that that can't possibly be right. It doesn't seem like he's king. And so Habakkuk in southern Judah, in this odd book and short book of prophecy, does what most of the prophets do not do. He does not speak to the people. His book of prophecy is a book of trouble, of griping to God about his seeming lack of governance, about the fact that the long wait is too long, that the establishment of God's healing reign over his people seems to be taking up too much time, and that the leaders of his people are, are making a mockery of the one that they serve. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you, Violence! But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? He's feeling in his gut this conflict that Christmas, that Advent in particular, can awaken in us if we start to listen to all the songs of Advent, the songs of longing, the songs of expectations, the songs even of fulfillment, the songs of joy that even in this apparently unthreatening time in our world for people who do not, do not believe in God, they're very happy to sing about his invasion of the earth and restarting of reclaiming of it all. Mariah Carey gets in on the action. Probably even Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Destruction and violence are... Before me, there's strife and conflict abounds. He's been on social media. Yeah, the order of the day is conflict. Assuming the worst of everybody we know. Hating everybody who differs from us. Check, check, check. This is the normal mode of existence. Read into someone's emotions, um, uh, read into their motivations, decide in advance what they must mean, decide in your own infallibility, hate them. Got it. There's strife and conflict abounds, therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous and the justice is perverted. He has the sense, as all of us do, that there's something really good about belonging to the God who breathed everything into existence and who has promised, who has promised that wickedness won't prevail. That all the vandalism to his good shalom will be pressure washed off the walls of his world. He knows in his guts and in his bones that it's good to belong to this God who frets, not about eternal ideas, but about the plights of scared third grade children. 
and desperate 62-year-old retired women. He knows that it's good to belong because this is the God who looks on injustice, the God who looks on the wickedness of people and finds himself grieved about it because he can't tolerate the anguish of his people. He can't tolerate it when the strong take advantage of the weak to prop themselves up. And so he senses this is good. This is a joyful thing. This is a relieving thing. This is a secure thing. And yet he feels this knot in his stomach. Because he looks around, and he's just talking about the people of Israel. He looks around, God's people. And he says, the leaders are not listening to you anymore. And so people are treated unjustly. There's favoritism that exists in the law courts, and therefore the law, which was supposed to give a level playing field for people, it was supposed to make sure that no matter whether you were rich or poor, or whether you came from the right family or the wrong one, that you were dealt with the same way. But that law is now paralyzed, he says, And so justice never prevails. It never wins. And he knows this ain't right. And he feels it in his bones. The main point today, for those of you who are feeling in your bones these contradictions, this this something amazing about Christ coming into the world to become what we are so that we might become what he is, to launch this, this beachhead of influence where he's going to make all things new, to, to assert his supremacy over and his reclamation of his good earth. And at the same time, your head really hurts. And you, you can roll your ankle during the national uh, SEC championship game. And your kids can get left out of things. And your body can betray you. And leaders can act without regard for anybody else. And so you feel this long, long wait. That's what life with the promising God is going to involve. And you need to know it. Waiting and waiting and waiting. But if you're going to wait and wait and wait, you're going to have to learn how to wrangle for hope. Hope is not an easy thing to come by. The, the realities that are shared expressed and promised in the scriptures by the promise-making, the promise-keeping, the promise-preserving God are vivid and they're clear and they're concrete and there's something meant to, gra- to, to grasp. There's something meant to populate your mind so that you have something to look forward to on the grimiest and gloomiest of days. But you have to wrangle because there's a lot of waiting and a lot of that hope is cut off from us. It's shielded from our sight. And so it's eminently important and exceedingly encouraging to me that this prophet here, seeing all the evil that he sees and wondering 
What is going on here, God? Why do you sit on your hands when you should be punching some people in the nose? And his, his reaction is not to lash out at all the people on Facebook. And it's not to take it to the streets just yet. His reaction here, and it's not even to, to preach to his own people who are the ones in there. It's to take it up with God. Well, I love that. Because you start to realize that as he takes it up with God, that he starts this way. How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? It's going to feel like if you take things up with God, it's going to feel like a lot of times that he's not listening and that he doesn't care. In fact, you'll be certain of it sometimes. People in relationships are certain of this all the time. You assume that someone doesn't do something that you thought they should do, and obviously that means that they hate you. It could never mean that they just didn't read your mind accurately. Most of us are pretty good at reading minds and knowing what everybody thinks and knowing everything that should happen, even though we do sometimes leave our phones on the top of our cars when we're about to drive off. We're, we're in a good position to be critics of everything, of course, because we never err ourselves. But regardless of that, we have this opportunity to take it up with the God who doesn't appear to be listening. And he doesn't appear to care. How long, oh Lord? How long must I wait? But you don't listen. How long must I cry out in violence? I just want you to see this today. Because what Habakkuk is doing with God is he's taking up with God all of the angst and all of the dismay and all of the confusion and all the disorientation that he sees all around him. Everything that doesn't seem right, like the way you feel after you get off of a redeeming session of news watching or social media gawking, you know that way you feel? Never uplifted, always outraged. Right? Right? Is that too cynical? No, that's exactly right. So what, is, what do you do with that? Well, obviously you go back to social media and you do it again. No. You take it up with God. God's people take it up with God. The prophets take it up with God. The Savior takes it up with his Father. And we are people who are invited to take it up with the God who doesn't appear to be listening and doesn't appear to care. And so we tell him. You realize what Habakkuk's doing here is exactly what happens throughout the Psalms. If you just, on this Lord's Day in the afternoon, if you want to just open up your middle of your Bible in the Psalms and just start going through and seeing how many of them start with some kind of Confusion, some kind of frustration, some kind of where are you? Or where were you, as the fray helped us to know? That's kind of a joke, but not really. How long, O oh Lord? How long? One of the problems 
especially as American people, says Helmut Tilaka in the 60s, he said this as a German pastor, when it was put to him, what is the major problem confronting Americans? And he would say, well, I would say race, but that's obvious. All thinking people are already thinking about that. That's a clear one. That's an obvious one. I'll give you one other. The people of your country have come to imagine that suffering, being in the long, long wait, being in this wrangling sense of, I don't know what's happening, and I don't know why this is happening, and why should this be happening, suffering is in the category for Americans of things to be eradicated. And that's the only way you have to think about it. The only way you know to think about the things in your life that you don't want to be there is to avoid them and to fix them and to make sure there's some technological solution to make sure that they go away. You know, so that you create artificial intelligence when someone you love dies so that they can pretend talk to you for the rest of your life. That's depressing and sad and actually happened. Tilika didn't talk about that. I'm jumping to the future. The present, his future. But he says we don't know how to suffer. We don't know and we don't reckon with the fact that we're going to die no matter how good things can get now or whatever the promises of technology are. And that we're going to age. Our bodies are going to fall apart. That's our major problem, he says. And it's, he says that's what's behind, for instance, the, uh, the struggle for... We can import here. The struggle with young people with sexuality. He says, I've seen nothing but such anxiousness from parents as want me to teach. Teach them about sexuality. And he says, but without a doctrine of suffering, how can I? How can we? If you as adults will not suffer, do not know how to suffer, don't have a doctrine of suffering, don't realize that you're in the long wait. This overlap time where things like our Savior's life, was a life of suffering acquainted with many griefs of unrealized promise. If you don't know how to suffer as grown-ups, to go without, to have promises that don't seem to be making sense just yet, to not do something that you really, really, really want to do, because you know that there's one who knows better than you, how on earth are you going to tell a hormonal and lusty young person to disobey their desires. That's painful. You can't be chaste. You can't be sexually obedient or financially obedient or relationally obedient or even functional unless you know how to endure with resilience and with hope pain. Lots of obedience requires pain. If you get up close to anybody in the world, any relationship's going to inflict some pain on you because there's going to be a clash of wills and one of you is going to have to defer to the other and that is going to be sometimes painful. And so you need a doctrine, an idea of how do I wrangle for hope? How do I wrestle? And Habakkuk would say, and the, the psalmist would say, here, here, we agree. And all of the Bible would say, you need to take it up with God. When Peter was asked, or Peter wasn't asked, Jesus was asked for Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what he wanted not to fail. 
His ability to hang on to the God of hope. When the suffering came. When the questions came. When the unbelievable happened. And so Habakkuk's taking it up with God. And he's taking it up politely. No, impolitely. How long, O Lord? Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you answering? Why are you letting this happen? George MacDonald has said, and he has, I guess, indirectly influenced everything that I know because everything I know is what C.S. Lewis has said. And George MacDonald is a a primary influence on C.S. Lewis, at least spiritually. And he said that we, we might wonder, why does God invite prayer to ask him for things? Couldn't he just do all things instantly and well? And of course. He says, but, but he might have other means and other ideas than we are aware of. He says, a runaway child may have a hunger that leads her home. That leads him back home. His hunger may lead him, like the prodigal son, back to a waiting father, back to a waiting mother, because their belly is growling, and they know if I go there, I can get some bread. And so the hunger might lead them to their mama, but what they need is not their supper, but their mother. And he says, God knows that your greatest need is not whatever need that you think is greatest in your life right now, but it is he himself. And so God withholds that we may ask that your soul needs God more than you need anything that you think you need right now. And so he invites you in the long wait to wrestle with him. How long, God? God withholds that men may ask. He withholds that we may ask men and women and children, children, do you need? Go to God with it. Wrestle with him about it. Ask him honestly for it. What do you see wrong? Take it up with him. Why? Why, God? What are you up to? Why won't you act? Do something, Lord. And in this way, what you are doing is you're wrestling, you're wrangling for hope. And it's very much like driving in the fog. This metaphor of fog driving comes up from time to time because of where we live. I get to think about it all the time, so it comes up from time to time. It's an interesting thing about driving in the fog. You can drive on a street that you've driven on thousands of times. Maybe thousands, I guess. Probably thousands of times. Streets that you know the curves of. You know where the shoulder is. You know, you know the people on the street, where they live. You know who has a dog. He unfortunately has a cat. You know the details, the topography, and the demography of your area. Like the back of your hand, you can imagine it. And all that has to happen is a snap of the fingers. Paul Barris makes an announcement, and boom, it's as if nothing existed ever before on your street. You start to suffocate in your car. <laughs> Why is it closing in? Is the, are the doors getting, are they getting narrower? Is the steering wheel trying to strangle me? You can't see anything anymore. All the things you knew were there are no longer there. So it seems. You can only see a step in front of you. 
And very often that's what it feels like during the long wait as God's people. Habakkuk wondered, what is going on? Why is all this violence? Why do you put up with this stuff? How can you stand it? God's going to tell him, hey, hey, I got it. The Babylonians are going to come and bring justice to Judahites. And he's like, that's no better. They're the worst people on the planet. What do you mean, the Babylonians? And God says, wait, 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 wait. There'll be more. I'm going to fix all of this eventually. But you've got to wait. And Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait. And so what you do in hope is that you're wrestling in the dark, in the fog, to reclaim. That means you have to slow down. You don't drive the same speed in the fog. You have to slow down and you have to recall. You have to labor to bring to mind what's real. What part of reality am I not seeing? And that's what prayer does. You know the first thing that happens to people very often when their faith starts to slip away, when they start to find their faith very flimsy, when they find themselves not really believing anymore, they've stopped talking to God. Find a person Find a person who talks to God an inordinate amount who also has a very vibrant faith. That will exist. That's not what I meant to say. Find a person who talks to God an inordinate amount who doesn't have faith. Who's walked away. You'll be hard-pressed. If you talk to God a lot, you'll find faith... A faith that can see through the fog happening a lot. You'll find answers a lot. You'll find persistence and hope and joy and coincidences. And you'll find God himself coming. The psalmist, even in his distress, can say, I lie down at night and go to sleep and I awake in safety because the Lord sustains me. There is this sense of immediacy that people recognize, even in the fog, even when I can't see anything else. My need is for God to come, and he does come. He's the God of hope, and he sees me through He makes me not wear out. He keeps my lamp burning. He turns my darkness into light, even if that light is just enough to take the next step. And that's what it's going to feel like a lot of times in the dark, in the fog. You can't see all the reality. But you fight, and you wrestle with the God that you're expecting to do something about all that. George Buttrick has said, sometimes you're knocking on the door of heaven. You're rapping on that door. But sometimes you rap until your knuckles bleed. But that's what wrangling for hope in the fog and the long wait is like. But you get to find something out. This God who has kept his promises, this God who has started the reassurance that injustice will be put down, that sin itself will be evacuated and eliminated by the coming of his own son into the world. This son who has said, this is God's sign that he is not opposed to us, but is for us. And he welcomes us. And he himself has said, keep coming to me. Call to me. This kind can come out only by prayer. And this God, revealed in Jesus Christ, shows us that he wants to hear from us. Anne Lamott later in the book says, for 30 years I have had this mentor, three decades, this mentor. I've come to call her Horrible Bonnie. 
Because Horrible Bonnie so believes in the goodness of God and his availability that it's just sickening. So I call her Horrible Bonnie because no matter what I do, I can't make her judge me. And I can't make her abandon hope. Horrible Bonnie. For 30 years, I've called Horrible Bonnie when I am the most deeply annoyed. And I'm frustrated. And I just got to vent. And I just got to get it off my chest. And sometimes I call her when I'm so much in despair. I can't stand it. And for 30 years, I've been calling her in annoyance and despair. Calling Horrible Bonnie, who I can't make judge me. And I can't make abandoned hope. And she answers always and says, Hi, dearest. I'm so glad it's you. Hi, dearest, she says to the annoyance. I'm so glad it's you. Hi, dearest, she says to the one stuck in fog and can't see any sunlight or even remember it anymore. I'm so glad it's you. And she says, I've started to imagine that this is how God listens to me and welcomes me when I come to him in prayer. Even when things are at their worst. She has good reason to believe that because Jesus Christ is the favor of God, the grace of God who has appeared. He saves us not by what we've done, but by what he has done and has promised to repeal the acts of death and sin. And in the meantime, has said, call on me. And when you trust me, when you come to me, even if you're not so trusting as you come. Here's what you'll hear. Hi, dearest. I'm so glad it's you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to believe again. We need to be given hope again to see again what we cannot see so often in the fog. Help us to hear you saying, hi, dearest. I'm so glad it's you. And hear us as we make our confession from the second panel of our bulletins. You all do the bold and I'll do the non-bold. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, 
You are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember our iniquity forever. Restore us, we pray, through the coming of our Lord Jesus, in whom we place our hope and trust. Amen. Would you take a moment to silently confess the ways that maybe you've given up hope, maybe you've turned away, maybe you've stopped calling, maybe you've preferred yourself. Offer those up to one who says, hi dearest, I'm glad it's you.